To love it all is to be vulnerable. Love anything and your heart will be wrung and possibly broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give it to no one, not even an animal. Wrap it carefully round with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of your selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, and irredeemable. To love is to be vulnerable. Right, that quote, of course, is taken from uh, C.S. Lewis's The Four Loves. And so we're, this is going to be our love podcast. <laughs> <laughs> what is love, baby? Don't hurt me. Don't hurt me no more. And C.S. Lewis would be would say to that, it's like, that's a point of love, you idiot. Just yeah, kidding. <laughs> that or do the Night at the Roxbury head bob. Yeah, anyways. Right, C.S. Lewis, as you know, we all know, is probably the most quotable Christian philosopher to have ever existed. Um, actually, one of the most quotable people ever. Even his uh, science fiction trilogy is really quotable, though I don't have any quotes from it. <laughs> and uh, he wrote a book called The Four Loves. It's kind of a breakdown of what love is. Um, C.S. Lewis kind of brings that distinction and nuance to love because you know we think of love and we we have only one word for it and so it kind of it's a blanket term for all sorts of things and c.s lewis breaks those four core aspects of love down and with the highest you know he goes through friendship uh eros the sexy part um uh so yeah yeah you have four loves you have storge you have philia you have eros and you have agape so what he said mm -hmm. greek and of course lewis was a classics guy so he definitely could read greek and knew his latin so yeah so i think before we try to break down you know lewis's you know four uh little chapters of love here um little takes on what love is in the human experience might um add a little disclaimer here and also say that for the most part, you know, when we say things like, as as Christians, as we when we say things like God is love or anything like that, um, it can uh, turn into mush depending if you don't have the right terminology or the right definitions. Yeah. So instead of becoming, you know, God is love as he defines, as love is defined by him, uh, it becomes uh, God is love, like that feeling I get when I eat a good hamburger. But, I mean, if you look at the, the classic way of what you know christian theology has meant um you know when we say god is love and you know we're supposed to love god and all this wonderful stuff um love is first and foremost a verb it's an action it's a thing that happens that is happening um it, it's not just a it's not just a noun. It's not just, um, oh, I'm in love. I'm in some emotion that you're caught in this fancy or, mm -hmm. you know, uh, you're a lovesick puppy, you know. Um, no, it, it's, an, it's a very intentional thing. And that, you know, even God himself and his triune uh, being um, is a relationship within himself. He is love. The Father mm -hmm. gives himself to the Son. Son gives himself to the Father. The love they share is... Holy Spirit. 
and, and that's a classic, you know, illustration to describe the Trinity, but that God himself is this eternal action of love. Um, that's, that's a good way of at least approaching what Christians have meant by love, is that love only finds its meaning in the one God who has revealed himself as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in this act of love, which... For us humans in public revelation, that ultimate act of love will come later in agape, and we'll mm-hmm. talk about agape later. But sorry for the disclaimer, but we have to say love for Christians is first and foremost a verb, not just something you a feel. Feeling. It's yeah. not a nebulous. It's not the chemical reaction that we get. You know, when when we get really excited or when we get turned on. You know, sexually. <laughs> that is, it's not that. Or even it's, it's not even that. You know what you feel when. A, you know, you have a cute puppy in the house or something. Right. But, yeah, just a disclaimer, and we'll go on from here uh, <laughs> now. So, um, the first... <laughs> so, the first love is um, Storge. Uh, it's kind of the, the empathetic bond. Um, let you take this one. So, um... We can't quote uh, C.S. Lewis ad nauseum, otherwise this would be an audiobook, not a podcast. <laughs> but um, Storge, in its simplest form, um, what you want to know about that is Storge is more of what we all come, what we all um, exhibit when we are first born. It's definitely a need love. It is I need you. I'm attached to you. So probably the best illustration is to think of a of a baby at his mother's breast. That is a bond. Um, that is a relationship. That is quite necessary. Mm-hmm. Um, not to get too Thomistic here, but and it is kind of appropriating the terms outside of their theological context. But you might think of the mother as the necessary being, and mm-hmm. then the babe as the contingent being. I would say Storge sometimes can be a very contingent love. You're dependent upon something, um, usually a mother, father, whatever. Mm-hmm. But um, it's something that we all encounter in our lives, and it's something as primal as, you know, when we notice the absence of something, we say what? You know, mama, dada, you know, stuff like that. Yeah. Um, that's a good way to start to approach Storge. And it's it's always related, or in most cases related, in within a family or societal context. Because, you know, we all, we need a community sort of around us in order to, to survive. So it's, it's almost a survivalist type of love. Throughout his, this section of his book, um, instead of calling it uh, storge, he calls it affection. And he doesn't just merely uh, consider it to be um, a need love, it's also a gift love. You know, affection is something we give and receive. Um, and uh, uh, C.S. Lewis talks about it being, you know, quite vulnerable. And it's, you know, it's responsible for about, for a lot of the majority of, you know, long-lasting human relationships um you know this is the the relationships we form with our family eventually you know for, with our spouses you know we form this kind of love as well and it goes deeper into the love we'll talk about at the end and uh and it kind of bonds society as a whole well i mean yeah it's like i don't think you know any sort of community or civilization would exist without some sort of you know storge or some sort of gift love and need love going on um, because 
otherwise, you know, without any give and take, without uh, uh, the interest of I need something, you need something, I give something, you give something, uh, where would we be? I mean, and I don't want to make it, you know, use some sort of uh, economic analogy of, you know, uh, supply and demand, but without it, I mean, you know, those elemental primal things that make us tick as humans, I mean, yeah, we would be robots in that, that sense, but Storge is definitely a primal uh, love that is within each of us that mm-hmm. is very necessary. Yeah. Yeah, unfortunately, um, this love is kind of the one that we take the most for granted. You know, we kind of assume that our family is going to love us because they're our family. So we think sometimes, that, you know, we can get away with being jerks because they'll love us regardless. You know, I know my, my parents loved me even through my teen years <laughs> uh, when I could be just, you know, a terrible person. Um, I, I assume it's the same with, you know, a lot of us. We can relate to that. But... uh and that way, you know, it can, we kind of take advantage of it. And it, it, uh, it can also, you know, really get bad. You can, you can go too far. So you can, like, say a mom or a mother going too far in her, her love for her child. So instead of it being, you know, the, the love that a mother gives, the gift love, she, it morphs into a need love where she needs to have that, that, she needs her child to need her. Yeah. Um, yeah, and yeah, definitely like a, I guess a perversion of maybe Storge would be manifest itself in what are called helicopter parents. Yeah. <laughs> Everything has to be controlled. And then even maybe, you know, you know, little Billy has moved on to college or is out of the nest, you know, that nesting thing has manifested itself. And so we have to follow Billy's Facebook page. We have to call Billy every night, mm-hmm. you know. His room can't change. It's got to stay the exact same. Yeah, but... make it a little bit of a shrine. And, you know, you can see, you know, perversions of Storge in many different relationships. Yeah. C.S. Lewis actually, again, in uh, the book The Great Divorce, he goes into a relationship like this with a mother who isn't, wasn't capable of allowing her son to, to pass on and allowing her family to, you know, move on from his, his passing. And uh, she keeps saying, oh, well, I loved him more than anyone else. No one loved him as much as I did. And uh, the angel speaking to her, uh, which I believe is actually not an angel, but a family member, ends up telling her, it's like, no, you actually didn't love him. You loved yourself. Like your love for him morphed into a, an evil, selfish love. Yeah, like an idea of him, but it wasn't the, the thing itself. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So the next love we might talk about um, is philia. Um, philia, um, could be often called friendship, but I think, and of course I don't have the text in front of me, but from what I remember in reading The Four Loves, Lewis described philia as, you know, this person likes the same thing I do. Mm -hmm. And we share this common bond or this common thing. We come from this common cause, whatever it may be, but it's a very, it's very much a love of wonder, um, of this person likes the exact same thing I do, and we're here together. But it's not a. It's a very. Uh, it might be. I don't know if I can't remember if you call it one of the purer forms of love. But mm-hmm. it's not sexual. It has. It doesn't want anything. Other than wow, we have something in common. Let's explore this together and kind of you know enjoy 
you know what we have in common. Yeah, yeah. Lewis uh, describes it as kind of being the the uh, least natural of the loves. You know, it's not organic. It's not instinctive. You know, it's it doesn't. It has no um, benefit to survival. Really. Yeah I, yeah. I guess you could also say yeah. It's a very intentional thing. It's like mm-hmm. friendship. It's not necessary. We don't need it to physically survive. Um, but you know, to you know, mentally get along, or whatever. Yeah, friendships are very beneficial. Mm-hmm. You know, um, and you know, sometimes friendships have to be very intentional because, you know, otherwise, I mean, they can die and morph into something else. Yeah, and if your common interests are there, then you can you know remain friends and or common interests and experiences and stuff like that. Um, if those experiences and those interests aren't shared anymore, oftentimes you know the friendship can't last for very long. Um, that doesn't mean you have to agree on everything, but you know at least have some core, core things that are very similar. Yeah, it's kind of like it's kind of like a sourdough starter. You have to, you have to feed it, or else it'll it'll, it'll piffle out or whatever. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it used to be that this type of love, like if you read a lot of um, old old books and old manuscripts, this kind of love between friends is almost considered one of the highest forms of love. Mm-hmm. Um, you find it a lot like in, in the Arthurian legends where, you know, between the knights and, and their, that small community. Yeah, and I, I, I mean, you even find that in the Bible. I mean, you look at, you know, and I think this is especially something that needs to be touched on because there's the idea in our modern culture that if two, you know, people of the same, you know, sex and gender, if they are together and they have, you know, a liking for one another and are interested in being together, that it must be some sort of eroticism or, you know, if there's a bromance, then these people must be, you know, quote unquote gay. Mm -hmm. Um, Or that there's some form of sexual attraction between them, even if it doesn't go into... But it's... That's very... I want to almost call that a novelty because you look, you know, at ancient cultures. Yeah, yeah, the Greeks had their orgies and yeah, they had their homosexuality then too. But, you know, you look even here at, uh, you know, famous Bible characters like uh, David and Jonathan. I mean... Which people have tried to twist into being an erotic relationship, you know, from one passage. Right. But, like, uh, I don't know, I again, I don't have the text in front of me, but I believe there is a psalm out there. I mean, and it's like, I don't know if it's a Davidic psalm or not, but the idea there is there. This is like, you know, my love for you is like the love I have for a woman. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, it's, David, once he finds out that Jonathan dies, he says, your love is greater than the love of a woman. Yeah, I mean, there's the idea. Um, mm-hmm. And, of course, I could be confounding passages, but, you know, the idea of, you know... I can have a love, I can have something with another human being that doesn't involve me being a parasite on them or doesn't involve me, you know, using my genitals with them. Mm-hmm. And, you know, yeah. and it's, it's love that, that goes beyond just the, the erotic desires because desires are, are so often selfish and, and self-based. And friendship is honestly, you know, very often not selfish at all. It's, you know, we're... We're both looking towards something else, not looking at each other constantly. And so we're not trying to, you know, get a mirror image of ourselves. We're, we're both on a journey and we're, we're able to experience that together. And that experience and that love, that bond created is often better than, than any kind of, you know, erotic relationship you can have with someone. And it has nothing to do with your sexual organs. Well, and then again, it's just, uh, you know, oftentimes a good friendship, you know, even if it's not like... Uh... 
maybe somebody dies or just maybe the friendship kind of piffles out just because of due to circumstance, geography or whatever, um, you know, a good friendship can live on in the memory and is present there for the person. And mm. the memories make present the reality that is that friendship. Now, uh, that is more enduring, I would say, uh, more substantial than just trying to find a flash pan uh, pleasure, which many private people try to do in uh, perversions of other loves, probably most uh, uh, commonly in, in eros. eros. Yeah. yeah. So, um, but yeah, um, philia, um, if properly uh, engaged in, um, yeah, it's very beneficial. Though it, it's kind of the most novel. It's just like it's not really necessary to my physical mm-hmm. being. I feel you. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. That's terrible. And that's also, you know, not to say that Philia doesn't have its uh, downsides. I mean, look at Philadelphia. They're the city of brotherly love. And they just, you know, burned it down after the Super Bowl. Um, that's, sorry, that's a, really not a, <laughs> not a very relevant aside. But, um, you know, this front love does you know, have dangers. You can get into cliques. You can form, like, these little groups. Um C.S. Lewis talked about dangers as being anti-authoritarianism and being very prideful, you know, kind of that in the clickness, you know, we're our group and nobody's allowed. Everyone else is kind of inferior. and Yeah, definitely a scapegoating mentality can can uh, uh, derive from, you know, the click mentality or the tribe or whatever. Um, you know, you can see this, you know, if you look at people like uh, the, the philosopher René Girard, he definitely came up, you know, with... The, the theory of mimesis, of mirroring, uh, you know, ultimately he used the biggest example of scapegoating is Christ, you know, and, you know, the Jewish nation, you know, basically casting their sins, their their insecurities on Christ, and, you know, making Rome, you know, crucify Christ. But, um, yeah, you know, you look at the idea of mimesis, and it's like, okay, you know, this perversion of we have this common goal ends up doing something that's not um, good, mm-hmm. um, which, you know, would be murder or slander or libel, anything mm-hmm. that happens from cliques and uh, groupthink. Yeah, this is why one of the one of the reasons why the collective, you know, tribalism is so dangerous. I mean... Yeah. I guess we can now, you know, move on to the, the sexy one, Eros, or the erotic bond. Um... You know, this is this kind of encompasses the whole being in love kind of idea. You know, the the feelings that we get. You know, when you see someone of the opposite opposite sex, or you know, in in other cases, the uh, same sex people or people who you know you're attracted to somebody, and then you, you got the well, the the sexual attractiveness feeling too. Well, and often again, like we talked about in Philia, you know, people can. Uh, confound, you know, these loves or these primal desires um, with Eros um, in a way which um, will kind of, you know, if if your love isn't ordered toward God, ultimately, then it will go astray. Um, and in our culture, I think Eros has become the king of everything. It is the most immediate, I think it can be the most immediately gratifying love out there. And mm-hmm. of course, Christians would believe that Eros is good. Yeah. It is. It is. It, God created, uh, you know, the sexual uh, relationship good, and it has a purpose. But often um, we have in 
concupiscence and original sin um, have perverted uh, what eros should have been mm-hmm. and augustine called you know sin the deprivation of the good so all you know you know whatever sexual sin you want to name what it is is the deprivation of the good that is you mm-hmm. know the marital bond between man and wife displaced and perverted for some other end whether it's you know, fornication or, you know, adultery or, you know, homosexuality or bestiality, whatever. Um, <laughs> yeah. The deprivation the... of the good is present in those sins. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it, it um, in its, in its good sense, you know, it, it can focus a certain type of love. So we can go from kind of the attraction, then friendship, we can move then and it can become Eros and that Eros is is uh, kind of meant in its true form to focus our love towards a certain person. So it goes from you know loving or being attracted to all women to kind of you know wanting a woman. You know, in our case, you know, our wives become the focus of all of our all of our love, and that kind of encompasses it, and then goes right. beyond. And then, like Eros, yeah, it has you know the purpose of procreation, mm-hmm. and um, you know. With sin, I mean, we've touched on it before in episodes when we talk about artificial contraception or maybe the, you know, abortion. Um, these also have to do with, you know, perversions of eros mm-hmm. and, you know, the attacking on marriage and the family, which God created um, to be the natural ends of eros. It's like when you take away the actual good that comes from eros, then, yeah, our society um, um, will plummet. Um, I believe, um, and I'm, you know, paraphrasing, you know, it was uh, the English writer G.K. Chesterton um, who said, you know, this triangle of truisms of father, mother, and child can never be destroyed. It can only destroy the civilizations that uh, rail against it um, uh, or rally against it. Again, paraphrase. But the idea being that, you know, once you take that natural end of, you know, the sexual act, um, you know, which is found in the family um, mm-hmm. and the conjugal act. You make either make it sterile or you kill the fruit of it in abortion. Um, yeah, society is going to go wrong. You're you basically carpet bombing what God laid as the foundation. Um, <laughs> foundation it, of society because you cannot have a society if you do not have that family structure. No, not at all. And I think Eros, of all the loves, it's it's really the most easily perverted and twisted and mangled. Um, I think part of that is because of how tied it is to physical pleasure. So it's it's the most um, instantly pleasing of love, yep. like you, you pointed out. Yep. Um, and um, because of that, it's often a love that people seek after more than anything else. You know, because we, we like what feels good. We, you know, we like what we like. Um, so we seek out that feeling. You have people that are addicted to the feeling of being in love, which is why they can never settle with someone longer than that because they, they don't get love changes or Eros isn't meant to last forever. It comes and it goes, it waxes and wanes, especially in, in uh, romantic and in marital uh, relationships. You know, we don't always have the, that, you know, sharp, you know, influx of Eros in our, in our marriages. You know, we have, it, it transitions into something much, much deeper and where Eros plays a part, but it is no longer the focus or the core. It's not needed anymore mm-hmm. as, as that. Again, not that it's not present, but it's, it's not there. But you have people that cannot divorce themselves from it. And so Eros becomes kind of like a god. And that's something that C.S. Lewis points out. You know, you have, uh, we kind of worship sex. We worship sex. We worship sexuality. We worship, you know, what 
people identify their entire personhood by who they're attracted to sexually. Yeah, they're sick. You know, you know, quote unquote, so-called sexual orientation. And it's like the only orienta- proper orientation for your sexuality is either all sexuality has to be ordered toward God. Mm-hmm. But um, if you're not going to, you know, you know, be single, and if you're not going to, you know, say be be, be a priest or a nun, you know, and you know, use your sexuality, you know, in a in a way for others, which is to say, I give this to God. Now I'm going to, you know, be in a work of service. You know, if you don't do that, well, then marriage should be your vocation. Mm-hmm. And then if it's not your vocation, everything will go awry because you're like, well, sex is good. Well, yes, it is good. But then again, you know, the society will come at with all these baubles and flashing lights. And most of it now manifests itself in online pornography, mm-hmm. um, which is the detriment and one of the major health epidemics of our age. Um, it, Especially uh, for men and growing among women. Yeah, I mean, because um, it will affect, you know, everything in your, if you, you know, in your relationships, is, you know, um, is just like, you know, what I see on this screen in these pixels it has to be translated in, you know, to my marriage. And that can be detrimental because the things you see and the things they come up with are perverted by evil and they weren't ever meant for marriage. And you try to translate that into with someone who hasn't won an immortal soul, <laughs> which will be judged by God. And mm-hmm. it was made in the image of God. And then, two, um, you know, you're going to hurt them. Yes. <laughs> I mean, that's horrible. But um, it's just like you could definitely affect, you know, whether that, you know, their salvation. And you could affect um, them physically as well. And it's just like it's detrimental because uh, the sexual act is you know, tied into our bodies. It's a spiritual act as well. Mm-hmm. I mean, anytime you engage in something sexual, um, you know, it's, of course, I don't have the study, but I mean, it's just like, there's like something written on your spine. You remember things. You remember, uh, I mean, special vi- victims of sexual trauma. Um, you know, you remember tastes. You remember uh, sights, sights. sights, smell, yeah. Um, mm-hmm. Everything. You, you remember the trauma because it's because sex does something to your human person that uh, mm-hmm. affects your spirituality, affects your, uh, it affects your soul. Another one of the dangers of Eros is that it's so, like, it takes, it, it, it's, it's, um, it's so engrossing, so, so passionate, that it often um, deprives us of our mental faculties. Um, that's why you have, you know, people out of love, you know, that kill themselves. Or, quote-unquote, you know, love. Because all they're feeling is the eros and that, that kind of need to, you know, be with that person forever. Or with a group of people, kind of however it's manifesting. Um, you know, that's why Romeo and Juliet is actually, it's not meant to be a... a uh, Romeo and Juliet was not Shakespeare trying to say, oh, look at an ideal romantic relationship. It was more like, don't be stupid, kids. <laughs> well, um... Yeah, it, properly ordered eros. If it's it's definitely yeah, it's it's hard. Um, you know, there was a, a an apparition at Fatima of Our Lady, um, and to the three shepherd children um, in the apparitions in the series of apparitions. Basically, it was related that you know souls go to hell for 
for the most reason, you know, the chief reason why souls go to hell are for the simple thing is for the sins of the flesh. And that's not, again, not saying that sex is bad or anything. It's just saying this is like, this is the one thing that the devil uses to just drag as many souls away from God as possible. Um, and so it's from the sins of the flesh of those perversions of the good that was Eros. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it, we're so easily led astray by it. Yeah. And so that's why, you know, um, without ordering your love toward God, yeah, things can be very dangerous. Very dangerous. Mm-hmm. And that's where agape comes in. So, agape is where the other three loves find their fruition, um, I would say. Um, and it's ultimately the love that Christ has given to the church and for the whole world um, in his pouring out of himself on the cross um, for the salvation of mankind. Now, I've kind of ca- encapsulated in the phrase, you know, no greater love have a man than this that he get laid down his life for his friends. Mm-hmm. But so agape is self-sacrificial, disinterested love. It's a total gift of oneself to another. Um, and with this saying, this definitely goes into the whole love is a verb thing. So agape functions and operates whether or not um, you feel like it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, um, you know, my, my children are, are uh, hungry and it's, you know, three o'clock in the morning. Um, you know, there's some ties with uh, Storge there, but it's just like, ultimately it's agape that makes you get up from your bed mm-hmm. and, you know, get your bottle for the baby or whatever you need to do. It's ag- agape that ultimately channels all those primal desires into, you know, the love Dante said that moves the sun and the other stars. Mm-hmm. It's God. It's God is love. Yeah. Love is God. But in the proper context of that action that operates outside of feelings, but operates for the total good of the other. Yeah. And that means, you know, not not giving in to pressures, not giving in to, you know, desires and things. We often see this in parental relationships, you know, where a parent will, instead of just acquiescing to their children's demands, uh, to you know, because they want to do something, you know, instead of wanting them to be happy, they want what's best for them. And so they work towards what's best. And, you know, really this type of love is the most fully encapsulated in the person of Christ. You like, like all things are. Um, the sacrifice he made on the cross was, it was something for a completely ungrateful and undesiring crowd. No one wanted him. You know, we rejected him. We pushed him away. We put him on the cross. <laughs> and on that cross, instead of condemning us, instead of um, instead of sending us all to hell, instead he, he used his sacrifice to save all of us. Well, even when Jesus is on the cross, I mean, he is, you know, he's acting as, you know, um, he's acting as victim and priest. I mean, he's still, he's interceding even on the cross. He says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And, you know, even in his last breaths, you know, you know, you know, you saying Abba or, you know, Eli, Eli, Loam Sabachthani, you know, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He is being functioning as a priest. He's, you know, quoting Psalm 22 and he's saying, my God, my God, where you've been me. He's saying who he is, what he's doing for all mankind. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, it's what he is. Um, and, you know, he's it's a God com- man. <laughs> yeah, it's completely undeserved. It's unmerited. It's it's the encapsulation of grace. It is, yeah, it is grace, you know. And as Paul says, while we were at sinners, Christ died for us, and that's mm-hmm. true. Um, 
so uh, it's hard to um, live up to agape because ultimately agape is the standard. Um, you go to uh, you know that that one chapter of the Bible that's read at a lot of weddings. You go to First Corinthians chapter thirteen. Of course, you know Paul ends it with that wonderful phrase. Uh, you know, in these three things: abide, faith, hope, and love. And sometimes, depending on the translation, that can be faith, hope, and charity. But it's awesome to know that um, it's translated charity more often, not from the Latin caritas. And caritas is basically what is meant by agape in Greek. So mm-hmm. caritas in Latin means what agape means. Um, and so that charity, that self-sacrificial love, isn't just a, you know, people hear charity, I think, and they're like, oh, you just have you to have feed the, the orphans, the <laughs> and oh, you have to, you know, whatever. And I think, off, you know, unfortunately, that English translation can be misconstrued, and which is why I prefer, you know, at least love, um, understood as agape, because, you know, it's like, yes, love is the one thing that never fails as paul mm-hmm. says you know earlier in the great love discourse in first corinthians 13 but that's the standard christ is the standard um mm-hmm. and you know that paschal mystery which christians are supposed to imitate of his life death and resurrection that's our end and our goal and our hope um it has it's a daily thing it must be lived out um mm-hmm. that constant death to self what i would constant death to self that I would will that is contrary to the will of the Father I have to crucify it in the Son of God so that whatever I am that God created me I and the Son of God offer to the Father of course Jesus is doing the offering but Mm -hmm. it's so important it's the one thing it's our end and this alone of all the different forms of love this is kind of the, the, the root the foundation the anchor it is incorruptible Right. And, you know, we, we talk about four loves. And, I mean, it's a good way to understand love. Again, it's a good way to, you know, section out, you know, how we love in life. And, you know, need love, friendship, so on. But everything, the one love of God in agape is ultimately what is practiced, what is perfected in us. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's important to make those distinctions so you don't you know be getting derailed or getting off the track somewhere you know? yeah when god says like when john says that god is love he's not talking about you know god is eros he doesn't say god is phileo he doesn't say god is uh storge he says god is agape god is that always giving love that self-sacrificial Right, and it must be Love. important to realize too that prior until you know the Christianity, I mean, agape didn't really have much, as much of a meaning as it does now. I mean, it's mm. only because you know the rise of the of the of the church and the success in general of Christianity and of the building of Western civilization and so on that agape has the meaning that it does now. That you know th- that development of the word and development, indeed, of the doctrine of atonement of love, resurrection, all that stuff. It finds its meaning in Christ. But prior to Christianity, agape wasn't as much of that meaning. <laughs> no, it was, kind of, it was kind of seen as a, a useless love almost because people didn't understand it. They had no comprehension of what it actually meant. Only in the person of Christ, you know, the actual pure sacrifice, a pure willing sacrifice, can we fully understand what that is. It is the most purely Christian of all loves. It can only be understood truly, fully in a Christian context. In, that, in the context of Christ himself. 
you know, offering him off, you know, and Christ himself. I mean, he is, he is, I mean, it's just, his love is very, uh, you know, and the person who he is, it's very, uh, Eucharistic. I mean, it's very and Eucharist, of course, means Thanksgiving in Greek. Mm-hmm. All he is is Thanksgiving to the Father. I mean, he is that. You know, he's a priest in the line of Melchizedek, and he ever lives to make intercession for us. And his liturgy of the cross, encapsulated and, and completed in the resurrection, um, it's the one liturgy that really just has no end. It is. That's why he he's a priest, you know, as Hebrew says, he's a priest forever in, in the, the line of, of Melchizedek. Yeah, in Melchizedek. And, you know, and that's why, you know, the author of Hebrews does say that's mm-hmm. why he does ever, you know, live forever to make intercession for us. Is because in this new covenant of, you know, the blood of Christ, that's I don't know, it's the it's the whole point. Um Yeah. And like Christ gave himself for the world, it's our job as Christians. To do the exact same for everyone, you yeah. know, we're we're supposed to be imitators and purveyors of that love, like we are of grace, right? Um, yeah, it's definitely imitatio Christi is the 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 uh, the call of and the vocation of the Christian in the long run, um, and you know that, you know the, of course, I believe it's Saint Irenaeus of Leon, um, but you know. He said, uh, you know, God became man so that man might become God. And this doesn't mean that we become like Mormons and we are little gods. But it's saying <laughs> the nature of God, which is what? To love, mm-hmm. the purest form of love, agape. It's like we join and share in that divine life. Mm-hmm. That God came down so he might assume us into his mm-hmm. divine life. Um, that's what we share. That's this, you know, the theosis or the divinization that happens is we become like Jesus Christ, you know. Sons of God, uh, heirs of God, and co-heirs with Christ. It's the whole goal yeah. of life. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, to to become one with Christ in his in his resurrection. Right. So within within marriage, agape is manifest. You know, when in Ephesians, when um, Paul is talking about love, you know, husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church. He's not saying you know love your wife in an erotic way. Even though, you know, that's that's a part of your, you know, what you give to your wife. He's saying, lay down your life for her. Sacrifice your desires, your your dreams. Give everything to her. Literally everything. That's our job as as men. So when, when we transition, you know, we, we come together often first as friends and then as lovers and then as partners in this this gift of agape. And it goes so much deeper than just the erotic feelings that one can have for each other. And often in many cases can kind of amplify them at, at certain points. Um, that's what's going to make marriage last. It's not going to be your feelings of, uh, you know, how, how the other person looks or how sexy they are or how good your sex is. It's going to be that absolute pure self-sacrificial love that you each have and give to each other. And this is especially important for us men. You know, that concludes the the four loves. Um, I guess to close it out, you know, just, you know, we, we are called to love one another as, as Christ loved us. Mm-hmm. You know. So, um, yeah, uh, Ultimately, agape is the goal, um, and it transforms into every facet of life. You know, 
wives submit unto your husbands, husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church. I mean, that's of course in the original context of marriage, but that great mystery, um, you know, which Paul speaks, um, ultimately, that is the mystery that uh, echoes into whatever mm-hmm. eternity is. Um, uh, but yeah, just focus on those things, um, especially those last three things that uh, Paul says in First Corinthians thirteen, and especially. Love, in the proper sense, love. Yes, <laughs> that got me. All right. Well, I guess that about sums it up for now. Um, I'm Nathaniel, and I'm a Catholic. And I'm Elijah, and I'm a Protestant. And we'll see you guys next time.